When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran. With me, Laura Curran. And let's bring in Laura Curran, a member of the Democratic Party. Joining us now by phone, Laura Curran. Laura, good morning. Now, here's your host, Laura Curran. Hello, I am Laura Curran, and this is Cut to the Chase, where we delve into politics, media, culture, and current events. Real conversations about real issues that affect our lives, no matter where we are on the political spectrum. All right? Let's get right to it. Cut to the chase with Laura Curran. So long before I got politics myself, I loved reading books about politics. Like my favorite would have been probably Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail by Hunter S. Thompson about the campaign in 1972. I love the sort of behind the scenes gossipy stuff. So I, I recently devoured this new book that's come out by Washington Post style section reporter. And that's important to note. He's not on the political beat necessarily. He writes for the style section, which is kind of like the arts and leisure section of the Times. His name is Ben Terrace, and the book is called The Big Break, The Gamblers, Party Animals, and True Believers Trying to Win in Washington While America Loses Its Mind. And I'm so happy to be speaking with the author, Ben Terrace. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. So what I enjoy about this book is the politicians are really the bit players here. You're much more focused on the people who work for them, work around them, pull them, raise money for them, whatever it is. And one thing that this book, well, I, let me just get, I just want to get into the characters that you follow um, and the empathy with how you deal with them. And you've got these really interesting, one-of-a-kind type people. You've got the oil heiress slash fundraiser for the most progressive politicians. Her name is Leah Hunt Hendricks. You have this cowboy diplomat who seems, you know, like a little bit on the edge of not quite being legal, Robert Strike, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. You've got a guy named Sean McElwee, a young man who was a Bernie bro turned Biden bro pollster who hangs out with crypto bros and who compulsively gambles on political outcomes. You've got a young piano player, kind of a, 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 an artistic guy, long-haired guy, young family man, who is very much in the CPAC inner circle, who is then disillusioned and falls out with his CPAC inner circle and then kind of gets sucked back in, Ian Walters. A young staffer that I really want to talk a little more about, uh, Jamarcus Purley, and his story was very moving to me, um, and others. And with these kinds of types, you could cheapen them, and make them into cardboard cutouts, into caricatures, which you do see a lot, especially in reporting. But you don't do that. I mean, you spend hours, days, months with a lot of these people, and they become very honest with you. So what I want to know, just from a human point of view, how do you get them to allow you to weasel your way into their heart, to spend so much time with them and to really open up with you? How, how does that happen? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I think it, it happens a lot of different ways for different people. Um, you know, there are certain people in Washington who are just desperate to be written about, right? And it's not hard to to go and talk to somebody who wants to see their name appear in a book or a newspaper or on television. Uh, I tried to have as few of those people as I could because, you know, once you're already out there talking to everybody, 
I just I feel like a there's nothing new to say about them, or b they're saying things that aren't really true. They're kind of playing a part. Yes. Um, Talking so points. it's a lot harder to talk to people who are real. I mm. mean, in Washington, there are a lot of real people who care a lot about the work they do, or um, you know, or con artists who don't care about the work they do but want to you know be under the radar, um, you know, getting away with things. And for me, I think a lot of people were willing to spend time with me because I was willing to put in the time, right? A, a, a lot of folks in Washington feel like they're not taken seriously and are hesitant to talk to the press because they're going to get one gotcha quote and they're yeah. going to run with it as the headline. And that's the whole story. Yeah. I can promise nuance and texture and, you know, the, make them as complicated as they are, which is not to say at the end of the book, they're going to necessarily like how they're portrayed. Um, you know, some of these guys are ridiculous. Some of them are hilarious unintentionally. Some of them are serious, but not in the ways they think they're serious. And my job is to tell as true a story as I can, but I can at least promise them that I will take them seriously. So the the cowboy diplomat, Robert Strike, am I pronouncing his last name correctly? Strick, yeah, Robert Strick. Strick. So he, I'd love you to tell us a little bit about him. You know, you went to his mini compound, you sat by the fire pit and you drank bourbon and he told you all this stuff and then he kind of broke up with you. <laughs> tell yeah, us, tell us a, about how that, how, how did that feel after bonding with him so much? Like, t- just tell us a little bit about that story. Sure. Well, so just to give listeners an idea of who this guy is, Robert Strick was a um, a longtime lobbyist who never really was successful until Donald Trump came around, and he was able to become one of the most uh, successful, at least financially successful, lobbyists of the Trump era. He's this cowboy hat wearing, um, ostrich boot wearing um, guy who lives in a farm called Alibi Farm outside of town. He's kind of mysterious. He likes to work for. Um, you know, dictators, and he tried to get a job representing the Belarusian government mm. during, uh, you know, the, the war with Ukraine, you know, the bad guy's side, basically. Um, and he wanted to explain to me how he was able to take advantage of the chaos that was the Trump era and become wildly successful. He's this chaos diplomat, basically. Mm. Um, and uh, I was interested in, in what would happen to somebody like him in the Biden years, right? It's one thing to have Trump's phone number and be able to make millions and millions of dollars, uh, you know, peddling access, among other things. How do you stay successful in the game once all of your kind of weirdo contacts that once inhabited the White House are no longer there? Yeah. And in spending time with him, yeah, he would pour tall glasses of whiskey at Alibi Farm and show me this world that he was able to build, you know, with his successes. Um, but eventually I think he, he got the sense that he was not going to come across looking like a true hero in this, in this book. I was able to do a lot of reporting about his backstory. He had, you know, uh, anecdotes that he would rather have not discussed with me that I was able to find on my own. And once he felt like he was out of control of the story, he wasn't able to just, you know, tell me stuff and have me print it. Uh, I think he kind of wanted out of the book. Um, and it got, it got kind of dark. I mean, he, starts texting me a lot and calling me a lot and accusing me of lots of things. Yeah. Um, and look, I did not find that fun to be honest. Like, no. You know, having a guy blow up your phone a million times, um, you know, accusing you of all sorts of crazy stuff was not, was not enjoyable. Uh, I can understand where he's coming from. And, and in terms of bonding, I didn't feel like I had become friends with the guy, but I did feel like I had a good character in the book and I didn't want to, uh, lose out on his story. And so, you know, it was, it's a diff- it was a difficult time in the reporting process for sure. 
You know, it's interesting because we think about the swamp, the permanent government, the deep state, all of these things. And it conjures up, those images conjure up something really organized, something that never really changes. Uh, but having worked in government myself, you realize there's no man behind the curtain. There's no, it's not even not even very organized. Um, and it And it changes all the time. And I don't think people really think of government as actual, fallible, delicate, and interesting, complicated, nuanced human beings. And that's something that your book really brings out. Well, thank you. I mean, that, that's the idea, right? I, I, I'm a political reporter, but I've never really wanted to be a political reporter. It's not <laughs> like I've been obsessed with uh, the, polling the horse and race. horse race and, and, and watching, you know, um, watching elections like their sports. It was never really my thing. But I am a profile writer. I do care about people and drama and bigger stories and explaining the world to people. And, and I work in the style section, like you mentioned, the Washington Post. And our, our big idea in the style section is to try to let people know like what it felt like. What does it feel like mm. to be alive right now? What does it feel like to be at a political rally? What does it feel like to be at a, um, you know, a film festival in Cannes? What does it feel like to be... Um, at a movie premiere. I mean, this is this is a big thing. And so I live in Washington, D.C. I see interesting people doing interesting work. I see wild drama and friendships that are breaking up over politics and politics that are breaking up over friendships. And I just think this is basically an incredible movie scene or yeah. you know, HBO series scene where all these people are doing kind of wild things that you don't get to read about much in the paper. And I wanted people to know what it actually feels like to be in this strange new abnormal that is Washington, D.C. You know, I went back since I was speaking to you, so I wanted to read some of your other articles. And you, I think this was in from 2018. You spent time with Kellyanne Conway and George Conway. This is when, you know, they were starting to... He came. He stopped liking Trump. Um, it wasn't. They didn't weren't divorced yet. It what didn't. Did they? What I want to say is, you really captured something so beyond what you might read in the New York Post. This person is like this. This person's like that. It's also simple. You were able to capture real people, an actual tenderness, and and I think as human beings, these are the kinds of stories that we can really relate to. Yeah, I mean, I, thank you. That, that that story was an interesting one, and, and I don't think either George or Kellyanne necessarily liked how they were portrayed in that. But in they that were piece, both so but, sympathetic, really. In the end, well, I that's thought the thing right is is uh, you can look at you, when when I think a piece is successful is you can look at it and you can say these are horrible people who um, you know are doing things that I really disagree with, and I wouldn't raise my family that way, and my politics are completely different. But you also read it and you see that they are people, and they have. Uh, hopes and dreams, and uh, sometimes they're carried in in the wrong direction. Sometimes they're able to you know see the light, and that is actually what's happening in Washington. It, it is not a bunch of caricatures um, who you know purely act the way that that it would be if, if scripted by someone else. Um, you don't have to like the people, but they are people. And I think, you know, it's, it's important to understand that. Yeah. And I think with the way our media is these days, where it's all so black and white and everyone's in their little camps, to bring out the humanity in people, I think is actually, I mean, I don't want to overstate this, but I think it can be quite cathartic and actually kind of healing. Like, you know, I see this as a person, not as an evil creature. And there's way too much of that on both sides, I find. Sure. And I also think that, you know, there's something scarier about um, 
human beings who don't necessarily always seem like they are the quote unquote bad guy doing bad things, right? If it, it helps explain how, um, you know, politics can get as dark as it gets now. Yeah. It's not just made up of, of good guys and bad guys. It's made up of people who are wrapped up in something that's bigger than they are. Well, that's a perfect segue to Jamarcus Perley, who is a young staffer for Diane Feinstein, who had a bit of a breakdown uh, and did something really strange that I'm surprised didn't get more attention at the time. Tell us about how you met Jamarcus and how that and what unfolded. Sure. Uh, the way I found out about Jamarcus Perley uh, was he um, filmed an act of protest after he was fired from Diane Feinstein's office that was unlike anything I'd ever seen. The whole, the whole point was to try to go viral. And what he did was he took a bunch of psychedelic mushrooms. Uh, that was not on film, but he, he did take a bunch of psychedelic mushrooms. He breaks into Feinstein's office in the middle of the night. He uses his uh, congressional ID, his staff ID, which still gets him in, even though he no longer has the job there. And he goes to her desk and sitting at her desk with the camera on, he smokes a joint, mm. puts on his mom's favorite song and dances around to the music, hoping that at some point this video will go viral and people will reach out to him and say, what was that all about? And he could then tell a story, which was, um, you know, a young black kid from Pine Bluff, Arkansas, who spent five years working in this office. Uh, and in the last year or so had been trying to kind of blow the whistle in his words on what was really going on in the office. He believed that Feinstein was not fully there mentally. He believed that she did not care enough about uh, black people. Um, he had stories he wanted to tell and he just needed somebody to tell them to. Mm. And he hoped this video would do that. But the problem is the video is complicated and weird. And mm -hmm. uh, I watched it after I read it. It's, it's captivating. I mean, I, I, I kind of can't not watch it, but it's not a natural instinct afterwards to be like, Oh, let's call this guy up for an interview to find out what this is about because it's not clear what it's about. Um, yeah. so I spent time with him to kind of, you know, understand the book is called the big break, right? And it's about, uh, the country having gone through a big break. It's also about people searching for their big breaks, mm. but it's also about lots of, you know, breaks that people go through. And this was his, right? I mean, he had kind of a mental break. He had a break from work. Uh, COVID was very hard on him. He lost his father into COVID. This was a, a tough time. And I wanted to talk to him because a, I thought his story was interesting. I thought his protest was interesting, but it also got me into a world that is often undercovered in books about Washington, the low level staffers, the, you know, people of color who uh, have to take on second jobs while working on the Hill because they don't, right. um, you know, right. they don't have the money to support themselves, but want to be a part of this great legislating process and electoral process that, you know, makes America what it is. Mm -hmm. And so uh, a person that I spoke to for that section called it the subaltern, the kind of mm -hmm. the group of people who are a little bit removed from power. And I just thought that these voices really matter in a book about Washington that is so often, you know, depicted as just being about rich and powerful swamp creatures who uh, are ideologically malleable and want to just go wherever the power is, which of course, of course, appear in my book as well. But it was important for me to find some some people that that represented the undercovered parts of of the city. Yeah, one of the things that I found so moving about Jamarcus's story is that five years he worked for the senator, and never once did she look at him or say anything to him. Yeah, he said that she Eesh, never knew his name. That's which rough. Is, you know, these senators have relatively big staff, but 
if you're going to be there for five years, you'd like to be recognized. Right, right. And a little credit goes a very, very long way. Sure, especially because, you know, these staffers are putting in long hours. They're doing, they, they are, you know, senators are important, obviously. Yeah. But the staff are the ones that, that end up doing, you know, 90% of the work. So you kind of want at least a little bit of the credit. The other fascinating, I mean, they're all so interesting. We could spend, I mean, we don't have a lot of time left, about five minutes, but uh, Sean McElwee, who <laughs> I felt for him. So he's the guy, he's the Bernie Brotash, you know, I don't know if, I, if I'm characterizing as you would, but he, he sort of is the Bernie guy and then gets kind of moderate because that's where the, the party is and he's a pollster and he does these cheap but really effective polls. So he's used by a lot of politicians, um, starts hanging out with Sam Bankman-Fried, which is amazing. You must have, when the news went down about Sam Bankman-Fried, you should be like, oh, wow, this is really relevant for my book now. Uh, yeah, yeah, it really... Uh, and it, and it all, the politi- all the politicians are going to want to want to hang out with this guy because he has access to all of this money. Yeah. Um, and he builds this company. He's about 30 people, young people. They all love him. It's a great esprit de corps. But things go south, and they end up jettisoning him. And he's kind of like a failure. Now he'll probably bounce back. He maybe already has bounced back in one way or another. But he's such an—he was such an interesting character. Just talk to us in the last couple of minutes that we have left about how his gambling informed his work and vice versa. Yeah. So Sean ran a, a group called Data for Progress, which was, among other things, a polling organization. And so his ability to do good work, you could kind of see it in the polls, right? If he, he polled and, the, and his polls turned out to be right, you know, data for progress was a success. He could also help, you know, spin a narrative by pushing certain polls into the press and helping people sell their campaigns. And he worked for uh, folks like Fetterman, for instance. Yes, yes. He worked on the Fetterman campaign. Uh, he, um, uh, his polls were tweeted out by the White House all the time. I mean, he was a, a big deal. And while he was doing all this, he also had a, a gambling habit. Um, he would bet on um, pretty much everything involving politics. He'd do it online using the website Predicted. He'd bet with friends. He would bet on cryptocurrency exchanges uh, by the end of, of my time with him. He had a real habit. And he claimed that it was because it was good for his business. If he put his money where his mouth is, he would remember his wins. He would remember his losses. He could learn from the experience. He, he had, there's a real tactile Mm. He, called, he called it his heuristic approach, where he'd have a tactile connection to the work. Mm. Uh, it also was a problem, right? I mean, he was betting on races that he polled. Uh, he was betting on clients. He was betting against clients. Mm. And that's not the kind of thing you can really get away with um, for too long in Washington, because A, it can look bad. It just looks you know, ethically dubious. Yeah. But also if you have a client, if, if you're paying this guy for polls and then you find out later, he's betting against you and talking about, <laughs> I would be so pissed. Like I'm in the press. I would be furious. Spreadsheet. Yeah. Uh, that kind of thing does not go over well. So between that, the Sam Bankman Freed connection, which went, went from being extremely valuable oh, to yeah. a huge problem for him. Yeah. Um, there was some allegations of possible straw donor schemes. This is alleged, but alleged straw donor schemes involving him uh, donating to, to candidates that Sam Bankman Freed liked, you know, on his behalf. Right, right. All that stuff combined, it was just like the guy had this meteoric rise and came crashing down kind of faster and harder than anyone I've ever seen in Washington. And I've been around a long time. It is a city of second chances, third chances, fourth chances. It's possible he comes back. But I've never really seen somebody, you know, burst into flames quite like that. Have you? So the, obviously, you uh, put this this 
book to bed a while ago. Have you heard from him since since then, since his downfall, since his flame out? Uh, a little bit when the book was coming out, I heard from him. Obviously, there was a fact-checking process yeah. right to the end, and, and I had excerpts that published, including one about him, and I, I heard a little bit from him then, but it's been pretty quiet since. Uh, my understanding is he's mostly spending his time in New York now. I saw that this guy, uh, he and his girlfriend now are hosting, I believe, like vegan supper clubs in oh. New York, which might be part of some sort of you know new, new hustle he's got going on. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Uh, but yeah, he's, he's always got something cooking. So the swamp is much more complicated than we know. Ben Terris, T-E-R-R-I-S, Washington Post style section reporter. Uh, thank you for this. I'm going to looking forward to reading more of your work and, uh, keep doing what you're doing. I think it's really important to talk about the real people here. I think that's the one thing that can maybe save this country is the fact that we can empathize with other people. So thank you for telling these people stories. No pressure at all on me for saving democracy. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate the time and I'll, I'll do my best. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening to Cut to the Chase. If you like what you hear, like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 